Episode 8 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. I wanted to remind everyone of a format change that we just instituted recently. Instead of releasing two episodes every week, we will now be doing one episode every Tuesday. We will alternate between a longer conversation with a wellness expert, a first responder, or someone running a program that helps first responders with Tactical Tip Tuesday, which is a smaller, shorter microcast where I go over a quote or a thought of the day, something to get you through your week. So today's show, Dan Willis is a retired captain from the La Mesa Police Department in California. He wrote the book, Bulletproof Spirit. In January of 2019, the second edition was released. And in this conversation, Dan and I discuss items in his book and some of the things that he's been up to since he's retired. Some things that weren't mentioning are a class that Mr. Willis developed in California It's a class on organizational wellness that's run through the California Post Certification Program. We also talk about warning signs for post-traumatic stress, and not just what those signs are, but how to approach difficult conversations with your coworkers when you are concerned about them. He also discusses his bestow philosophy, peer support. He has self-awareness prompts and questions at the end of all the chapters to really get you thinking and be introspective. He also talks about the culture of wellness in today's time. So I won't go into too much more detail about the show, but check out his book if you're interested. It's so well-written and such a great resource. I recommend it all the time to people when they ask me, what is your number one wellness resource? And that's usually one of my top three. So if you want to buy a copy of the book, contact Mr. Willis at firstresponderwellness.com or you can purchase the book on Amazon. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Captain Dan Willis, who served with the La Mesa Police Department near San Diego for 30 years. During his career, he worked violent crimes cases such as sexual assault, child molestation, and homicide. He also served as the SWAT commander and wellness unit coordinator. He's a graduate of the FBI National Academy and is the author of Emotional Survival and Wellness Guidebook, called Bulletproof Spirit, the First Responder's Essential Resource for Protecting Healing Mind and Heart, which is a required reading at the FBI National Academy. He's a national instructor on trauma, PTSD, and the process of healing, having taught in 33 states in Canada. He currently lives in San Diego. Sir, welcome to the show. Hi, Wendy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time and um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I had the opportunity to meet you a few years back when you visited the great state of Kansas. Yes. Yeah, a couple of times. Yes. And um, you uh, actually came to um, Wichita to talk to us about your about your book and you gave us your presentation. It was really, really interesting. And since that time, you have come out now with a second edition of your book. Yeah, the second edition came out uh, uh, fall of 2019. Now, uh, the original one came out about five, six years ago. And the second edition, it's really been uh, completely updated. There's two new chapters. And uh, I, I find in the, the response I'm getting back is just really even more helpful and uh, useful for first responders. 
And I would agree with that. Um, I bought your book and read your book, the first edition years ago, and about a year ago, got your updated edition and just recently reread some of the newer chapters to refresh my memory before we were going to talk. And in particular, and we'll get to this in a little bit, the, the chapter on the brain, I thought was really beneficial because I believe that you added that from the first yes, time. Correct. Yeah. Talking about how traumas can injure our brain and and uh, more importantly, how we can uh, recover it and, and kind of reboot the brain so so we can recover from, you know, some of the devastating effects that our traumas can leave us with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and before we before we kind of start this conversation, there's two you have some really, really great quotes and and excerpts that I just I use a lot um, ever since I read them. And I think they weren't mentioning as we get started in our conversation. The first is in the very beginning of your book. And you say uh, the lack of sufficient wellness training and training and emotional survival for emergency first responders has become a critical issue for all of us. I think that's a really important quote and kind of uh, lays the groundwork for our conversation today. And then something else that you put um, that I think is even more timely given the current environment, uh, the safety of our communities is inherently connected to the health and wellness of first responders serving them. And just kind of given what's happened over the past year with COVID and, and the environment uh, surrounding the defending the police and the riots, um, I think this conversation and that quote is even more timely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if uh, first responders in any community, if they're struggling, if they're uh, not getting any sleep, if they're drinking way too much, if they're suffering from post-traumatic stress, if they're addicted to the things, if, if they're hating the job, hating people, not liking work anymore, you know, that, you know, what kind of service are they providing? And that has very long lasting effects within the community and the partnerships between the police and the community. So it's really in everyone's interest, the agency, the effectiveness of the agency, the, for the individual officers success and their health and well-being, and for the safety of the community is that the first responders um, create a culture of wellness within their agency that supports and, and helps take care of each other because no one's invincible to suffer from, from these daily traumas that we experience you know, over 20 or 30 years. And, and when you were with your agency prior to retirement, you were at the rank of captain, which obviously means you're a leader and a decision maker. So what, what the information that you include in your book, the things that you learned uh, about wellness at that time, how did that inform decisions that were made in your agency and kind of to build on that, how does this information continue to help inform decisions that other agency leaders are making when you go speak to these various groups? Look, it really the, the principles of wellness that are within the book and that I teach are really go towards uh, creating that cultural wellness and establishing organizational wellness. So uh, as a commander, a, ma a manager or supervisor, we try to, in my agency, have the immediate supervisor be the primary care provider, at least as far as work goes, for the people that work for them. And growing up in my agency, I mean, that, that was just a foreign thought. You, the supervisors just were concerned whether you did your job or not, and you moved on to the next call. But to actually expand what, what it really means to be an effective professional police officer that's really out there making a meaningful difference, you have to be well. And the supervisors have to take a personal interest in their subordinates' well-being and how the job may be affecting them. 
And you have to do that by just daily positive engagements and interactions to develop trust. So maybe that subordinate will feel free to come to you when, when they're struggling. And also for the supervisor to notice things so they can intervene um, before things start to get out of hand or starts affecting behavior. So it, it really is an overall philosophy of developing organizational wellness. So our, our agencies are not dysfunctional, right? So we're not just uh, having knee-jerk reactions to things, but we are proactive, proactive in developing those resources and training that, that really provide that support that is essential if our people are going to get through their careers. And my whole purpose is why I'm doing this is I want someone to get to the end of their career and not curse it, but to be able to look back and thank God that they were able to do such a great, great job of protecting life and serving people. It, it, there's so much nobility in what we do in protecting and giving life to people. And it really should be inspiring and, and uh, fulfilling for us and, and not depleting or robbing us of our life, our quality of life. And uh, so many of our people get lost along the way and lose sight of all the good that we can do. And focusing on being the good amidst all the bad and, and being able to make it to retirement and really, really feel good. Have that pride that I, I affected people's lives. I was able to make a difference. I couldn't agree more because unfortunately, I think a lot of people when they retire, sometimes they retire a little earlier maybe than they plan to, or maybe they're a little disgruntled, um, kind of going along with what, what you just said. So at what point um, during your career, I know you said you were, we, we see that you're the wellness unit commander at some point in your career. When did things, when did your awareness start to shift to taking care of yourself and your coworkers? Was there a specific incident that happened to you personally or was it kind of a gradual awareness? Well, I had a, a personal incident that happened about six or seven years on the job when uh, I, I just realized that I had lost the ability to really feel and be connected with people. I, I, I had become what I call being emotionally dead where uh, I just couldn't really feel things anymore. I was uh, becoming more and more isolated detached, uh, uninvolved with interests and people outside of work um, and just becoming more and more uncaring. And that is not a healthy place to be at all. And, yeah. um, you know, thank goodness I had that realization early on and, and I was able, um, the information that's in the book and, and what I, I teach is, is really from 30 years experience of a personal journey and discovery. And then what really expanded that for me, wanting to reach out and help my brothers and sisters serving is in 2010, my agency sent me to the FBI National Academy where I studied emotional survival and wellness. And the book is actually a product of that. And that really set me on a course of experiences that, that significantly not only changed my career in many ways, but really changed and affected my life. And that's my passion now is to share that, to share that with people so they don't suffer the heartaches that I did. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, because you you currently now teach for the FBI National Academy and you're saying that your kind of your passion or this interest in this topic started back then when you attended some training there. Right. Uh, I, mean, I always, always had an interest in my uh, colleagues, but the focus on wellness and how the job was affecting us, it just wasn't part of our culture. It's pretty much everyone was on their own and you hope for the best. 
And but that experience in the in the academy where I really looked into the nature of trauma, which which I hadn't really understood before, of how you, you don't have to be in a shooting, you don't have to be in anything horrific for your brain to be injured, for you to suffer post-traumatic stress. The vast majority of our colleagues who have PTSD, PTSI, because it's really an injury, not a mental disorder, the vast majority of people who have it weren't in a shoot. They were just cops. They are just doing what you do day in and day out. And, and the nature of trauma is it's not just poisonous, it's it's cumulative. And these small daily doses of trauma, you know, another, another suicide, another child molest case, another fatal car collision, another fight, another threat against you, just on and on and on built up to the point where the processing part of your brain just gets overburdened and shuts down. And that's the injury. And then the symptoms start to appear. So, so uh, once learning the whole nature of trauma, what trauma is, which is really any experience that has the potential to affect us in a negative, bad way over a long period of time. And we have those experiences every single day. And then once you understand that, you, you can then really start looking at what you can do about it in ways to build resiliency, ways to protect ourselves. And if we do start to struggle, ways to heal. And I think what you're saying is really important because the first step is, which is a very difficult step, is first of all, changing attitudes and culture regarding trauma. You know, because like you said, uh, traditionally in this line of work, we have been told to take care of it yourself or suck it up. Um, and now we're being told that um, we need to reach out. We need to be able to talk about these things, which isn't an easy transition to make. So a couple things, I guess. First is that I think what you're saying is making people aware of this, what you call and others call this invisible injury that, that we can't necessarily see, but doesn't mean that it's not there. So people are educated on on what happens, how it how it can be created, and the signs and symptoms to look for. So you address that in the book and you, you even come up with your own framework um, of when you teach this. And I don't know if you wanna get into this at this point, but I was going to ask you about that, the bestow philosophy. Right, so when we're talking about organizational wellness and personal wellness, it, it's not so much a program because programs kind of tend to, to come and go, especially in a reactionary sense when something bad happens. Okay, we need a program, you know. And, but uh, BESTOW stands for Beyond Survival Toward Officer Wellness. And that's that culture of wellness and mutual support and supervisors being the primary care provider for their people. It's really a philosophy that it's not just okay for us to ask for help but it's even more okay for us to notice that our colleague might be struggling and, and, and to help them to, to uh, offer our assistance, to uh, demonstrate our caring for them, that we're interested in their well-being, right? And, and to be able to mutually support and engage each other. Because, I mean, suicide continues to be a number one cause of death, about 20% will suffer from post-traumatic stress at some point in our careers and all the other issues and problems that we have, what we've traditionally done obviously isn't working. And the one thing more than anything else that we've done in the past is not talk. So if we really wanna change those numbers, we really have to start uh, being comfortable enough to, to just understand 
that it's okay to be human, which means it's okay to be afraid, to suffer, to, I mean, we, we, we bleed and we fear, we suffer like everybody else. And that's okay, right? It, it's not normal for you to go to a child's death call and have it not bother you. I mean, it would be if you weren't a human being. And, and there's, there's ways that we need to practice daily, not just wait until a crisis happens or you're really struggling. Every single day, we need to nurture and support our mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health and wellness. Those are the four components that make us human beings and make us good cops, good, compassionate, selfless cops. And uh, all four of those com components of our humanness need to be nurtured and developed and strengthened if we're going to have good resiliency and overall fitness and wellness. And so when you when you came up with your philosophy and I assume you you shared it and, and rolled it out in some way at the agency you worked with at the time, how, how was that uh, embraced? How did people receive that at that time? Well, what I did to, to get buy-in, which actually worked uh, immediately, is I went to every lineup and I just asked the question, you know, raise your hand if you're the same person you were when you got hired. And not one person raised their hand ever. And I asked that same question as I go around the country training. I've been to 32 states in Canada, I've trained over 7,000 peace officers. I have yet to have one say the job has not negatively affected them. So uh, the next question to that is, okay, then what can we do about it, right? Because it's not really in our nature just to let something victimize us, right? We're warriors of spirit, we take charge, we, we uh, want to control you know, our destiny, our future, our well-being. So um, if we acknowledge just how much this job has really affected us and our quality of life, our relationships, our health and well-being, then there's got to be something we can do together to help prevent that. And, and that's the buy-in and that's the beginning. Okay, what can we do? Yeah, I, I really like that, how you explained that you went to, to squad meetings and you, you met with smaller groups of officers because I you said earlier that we really like in, in law enforcement to just create programs. And I think that sounds kind of impersonal, like we're just forcing something upon someone. It sounds like what you did is you actually went and had genuine conversations about these things face to face with people. Um, and it sounds like you got a really good response. Right. And, and that's what we have to do in this profession. We have to be able to connect with people. And that, that's actually one of the effects of trauma is it eats away at our ability to relate, to communicate, to share, to feel emotions and, and to connect. But we've got to really connect to our brothers and sisters um, so we can, we, we can just sense when something's off, when, when they're not quite right, when they're not themselves. And when we notice that, to be able to have the caring to reach out to them and, and, and to offer help and, and, to, and to just be honest, right? To be honest, sharing our own journey, our, how, how the job has affected us and what has worked for me, what has worked for you. And, oh, you really, you did that? And maybe I can try this. And, and having that conversation of we're all in this together, we're all united by trauma, by the traumas of this work that unites us more than anything else. And, and that, and that um, uh, unity of what our shared experiences of these horrific experiences that we all share, the effects on us are very, very similar. It's just that we don't know it because we don't talk. We think we're the only one, 
you know, they can't get any sleep that keeps reliving things over and over and over again. That has these thoughts and emotions they can't control. Everyone else is too, but we don't know that if we're not sharing and connecting with our brothers and sisters and reaching out. And I think that's why your book um, is so important and you going out and, you know, reaching all of these different people across the, the nation and, and even in Canada, like you said, because I think the more we talk about this, the more we share our stories, which is really the point of, of why I wanted to start this podcast is for other people, first responders, people who are running wellness programs, family members, anyone who has anything to do with supporting our first responders or frontline workers, I think it's important because you never know the impact that one thing that you might say can really make on another person. And to me, that's what it's all about. In, uh, in your chapter on spiritual wellness, uh, you come up with a whole bunch <laughs> of different tools, 26, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, if you don't mind addressing maybe your, it might be hard for you to come up with your top three to five, but the one that that stands out you just referred to is um, serving your colleagues, because usually when we get into this line of work, most of us um, say that we wanted to serve our community or some of us say we wanted to seek justice and put the bad guys away. But really, we don't normally hear people say that not only do we want to serve the community and you, you make a comment in there about how our community that that's the people that we serve alongside with. And I really like how you specifically uh, delineate that in your, in your chapter. Right. And, and we, we have to really, ex again, expanding our conscious awareness of what it really means to be a cop or be, to be a first responder. Uh, and it's not just taking care of and protecting the community uh, because they're not going to be safe if our brothers and sisters, if we're not safe as well, so um, everything at work involves not just um, protecting people from uh, the evil of others. It, it's assisting each other so they can be their best so that they can help protect and serve the community in the way the community needs them in the most professional, the most ethical, the most compassionate and meaningful and helpful ways that are really going to make a difference. So if I'm healthy and well and I'm doing the best job I can, um, but the people around me aren't, then you know, what, what good is that? How, how is that going to affect the image of the agency and, and the uh, cooperation from the community if they're not, if they're getting less than the best service? And um, I am less safe if the people I serve with are struggling, if they're being affected by traumas. So it, it, it's in the community's best interest, it's in my best interest, it's in my colleagues' best interest, it's in the agency's overall best interest, that uh, everyone faces this head on and, and works together um, to help lift people, to uh, promote wellness, to promote those things that really are evidence-based. There's a lot of science behind everything I teach that's, that's within the book. It's just not me coming up with something. It's, you know, science proves what really helps us work through traumas and to, and to help each other. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, the you, you come up with a lot of different things that quite honestly, I, I've never even thought of before in, in, in the context of how we're talking about this. So I, I kind of jotted down a few, you talk about a few of my favorites, which are meditation and of course, fitness, exercise, yoga, um, eating a certain way. 
but there's there's some that are a little bit um, a little bit different that you don't normally hear about. Um, one was you aren't your job, uh, meaning that you know I think that as police officers we typically over-identify a bit with the role that we have in our career. Um, so can can you go into that just a little bit and why you included that in that chapter? Sure, because uh, I, I think this is really significant. If a lot of officers, a lot of first responders, their whole identity is wrapped up in what we do. And um, the problem with that is if your whole identity is wrapped up in what you do, any little thing that affects your job, you are going to take very, very personally. And I think that's why many of our colleagues end up being very, very frustrated, bitter, angry, negative, cynical, um, because they just take everything personal. And we cannot take everything personal in this job. It, it's going to eat us alive. So um, I, I like to see it as as great of a job as it is. And I miss it every day. I've been retired for six years. I, I think about it literally every single day. I wish I was still doing it. I love police work so much. But it, it's a temporary role, right? We're also a, a husband, a wife, a father, mother, a, a coach a neighbor, you know, all, all these other roles that we have in life. And what we do for a living is just part of us. It, 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 we have to be proactive in it, not letting it overtake our lives. We should love this job, but we should love our life a whole lot more. So we have to give it that interest and attention or the job will overtake our life. Yeah, one of the things I like to remind people of is you can love your agency, you can love your job, but it's not going to love you back. It's not a person. Right, exactly. So ha tell me a little bit about your particular transition uh, from retirement. You said you miss the job every day. What was it like for you personally um, when it was time to retire? Had you taken steps, proactive steps to get yourself ready for retirement? Did you know, did you have a plan? Cause I think that's important to talk about um, for maybe those listeners who are, are near retirement or it's, it's, it's kind of in their sights. Yeah, retirement is really a, a very, very um, essential issue to, to consider probably when you first get hired. It's something you should be thinking about and, and really planning years before you retire. Now, I had something to do. I, I had this to do. The book had come out and uh, I was getting uh, invitations to speak and travel. And it took about two years for me to really adjust to being retired and doing this new work, even though I was doing it from the moment I, I did retire. Um, again, just because I loved the work so much and, and and, uh, and being a good amidst all the bad and helping people. Now I'm helping people in a different way, but uh, I guess I fell into that trap of being so identified with what I did. And I hear stories like that all the time. People say, hey, you know, I'm gonna retire, uh, give it about three or four months and just kind of relax and I'll figure out what I'm gonna do. People that do that, you're, you're gonna be lost and it's really gonna be much harder for you. Uh, the other point I wanna make is, uh, I think a lot of us think once we retire, uh, a lot of the bad stuff is just going to go away because I'm not going in every day. I'm not having those experiences anymore. But trauma doesn't just go away because you're not doing the job. And the stats show that that we have an increased likelihood of committing suicide in retirement than we do when we're active duty. So uh, it's important to remember that um, 
those traumas are still there. And if you haven't uh, dealt with them or faced them or, or maybe uh, gone and, and have had EMDR done, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, probably the most effective treatment for traumas for post-traumatic stress, um, they're still going to be lingering and affecting your quality of life. But re retirement is, is, is really big. And as much as we try to prepare for it, often uh, we're still going to struggle a while. Yeah, you bring up a lot of really good points when you talk about that, because I think a lot of times what people do, and I, I recently had a conversation with a 40-year law enforcement veteran, someone I used to work with, we have both now since retired um, from our agency and have kind of second post careers, <laughs> um, retirement, but not retirement. But anyhow, this, this conversation was around this very same topic. And this individual um, really didn't feel like they had ever had any major issues throughout their career, um, but had struggles after they retired. And this conversation came up because first of all, they openly admitted, which isn't easy for people to do, that they identified so much with their role um, you know, as a law enforcement officer for 30 something years. And all of a sudden that was taken away. And that was very difficult for that person to have to, to deal with. So that's one thing. And then I think on top of that, you mentioned how when we leave, all of a sudden things just, um, they don't go away. And I think one of the big takeaways is that people should know is that if there's something that bothers you and you stuff it down and you compartmentalize, which sometimes we have to do when we're on scene or we're in doing an interview, but at some point we need to address it because we can't wait 15, 20 years to address it because we do see, like you mentioned, a lot of people, um, once it is quiet, once we don't go to work every day, that's when things can really start to surface. So I'm really glad you brought all of that up because I don't think that we can say that enough because I hear it a lot uh, when I teach or talk to other first responders that, you know, I know all of this, but I'm going to wait until I retire when I have time to deal with it. But I don't think we can, I don't think that we have that luxury to wait. Right, right, exactly. And then, uh, uh, Wendy, I wanted to go back a little bit. You had mentioned um, about spiritual wellness, which is uh, one of the chapters in the book. Uh, I'd like to just take a moment and, and talk about what I mean by that. There, there's a great uh, spirituality in serving others and in protecting life. And by that, I, I do not mean religion. I mean, a person might use a particular religion to help to uh, help inspire and motivate them and, and uh, find a certain peace in what, in what they do. But really the, the spirituality of service involves our ability to connect with people, our ability to serve what I call heart-centered service, to be driven by our heart, to make a meaningful difference, to be compassionate, to be uh, caring, uh, to be able to recognize a need and just be naturally motivated to want to fill it, to, to help, to be useful, that that is all involves a spiritual resiliency and, and, and wellness and uh, other than love probably the most basic human need is to be useful we have to fulfill that need of being needed and useful and how uh, our people fulfill that need will determine the quality of their career and the quality of their life in many ways and you know sometimes with all the things that are going on Sometimes we are the only good in a present moment, right? In the middle of a scene or something. And that is when we need to make that conscious decision to be useful, to be the good amidst 
all the bad, to not just let yourself be victimized by these things, but to do something about it. It's an opportunity to choose your character. It's an opportunity to practice wellness, to do something that's going to be helpful and, and useful. And, and maybe that's just listening to somebody in a, in a compassionate way. Maybe it's just offering a couple words of, of hope or a comfort. But uh, we really have to have this mindset of what can I do to matter? How can I help? What needs to be done? And uh, the reason why so many of us get lost into retirement is we're, we're not really useful anymore like we used to be. Uh, going to work every day when people call calling with us with these life horrific you know, situations that they're dealing with and we help them through. And, and, and if we can find a way to continue to be useful, to continue to be serving, whether it's a volunteer somewhere or uh, helping out with, with uh, any interest that you might have, you can't just sit around and, and relax and take it easy for the next 30 years of your life. You, ha you have to keep feeding that, that uh, spiritual component of our overall health and wellness, which is helping people and being useful and serving and being the good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's a really uh, helpful perspective shift. And sometimes uh, just listening to um, the way you frame a situation and having a slightly different attitude towards it, um, I think can really change things. And so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, and of course, people can learn more about your spiritual wellness if they if they buy your book, because I know you have a lot of really great tools and ideas that that you put in your book. And one thing I really enjoyed about the book was that at the end of every chapter, you, um, you've added or put in self-awareness questions or reflection questions. Um, can you just kind of tell me what, where that idea came from and, and why you think that part's so beneficial? Uh, I think it's essential because for us to be able to do something proactive and helpful uh, in regards to building resiliency, and not letting the job cripple our life is we have to become more self-aware because the effects of trauma is really like a cancer that just slowly is eating away at our ability to be normal and to have a healthy, meaningful life. So if we're not self-aware, we're not really noticing how we might be slightly changing, but over the years, those small changes become significant. And this job can not only suffocate our heart, and shut us down where you're unable to feel or care or do anything really meaningful, it can really turn us into someone our loved ones don't recognize anymore, someone that we don't even recognize until it's too late. Right? So I, I have these questions at the end of each chapter, kind of self-reflection, self-awareness questions to where after you just read some, some uh, insights about wellness or policing, to, to take a step back and, and look at how does that relate to you? Um, you know, what, what do you really think about that concept or this wellness strategy? Uh, what are ways that you might be able to implement that? Uh, how can you prevent such and such from happening to you? You know, questions that probably most people never thought about. And, and once you ask those questions and, and you uh, consider these things, it, it really helps to open the door to our intuition. And we'll tend to get ideas and insights into things that we never have really looked at. And those are really the open doors of us being able to have some insight and then to start actually doing things that are proactive, that are practical, that will really get us to a place where we want to be. 
Yeah, no, that's, it, it's good stuff because um, one of the things I personally like to do, I haven't, I don't do this every single day, but I'd like to journal and I started doing that a few years ago. So once in a while, I've done this actually with a few of your, your self-awareness prompts at the end is I've used some of those and some other things where I'll just take something and journal on it for five minutes and 10 minutes. And it's kind of amazing what, what you come up with things that you really never expected. Uh, writing is really a, a, an effective way to uh, work through things and uh, also a way to help release things. Because when you're writing something and you're actually looking at it, you're, you're writing it, you're reading it, uh, it, it's a way for your, your mind to kind of process whatever uh, you're dealing with. And it, it just kind of helps release some things. It also helps you make sense of things because you're looking at it in a kind of a more expanded and also a more detailed way as you're thinking about it more intently and writing it out. So it really helps, helps open us up um, and, and um, helps encourage us to learn, to learn from our experiences and things that we, we maybe have internalized, but now we're kind of more out in the open as we're laying them out. Yeah, it's my understanding too that that you know a lot of times we don't write probably nearly as much as we used to. We're on our devices more than anything, but putting pen to paper, there's something about that. It just taps into a different part of your brain. It helps foster creativity, mindfulness, and taps into certain parts of your brain that help put things in your memory stores differently. And and so yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm not familiar exactly with the therapeutic practices, but I have heard that there are some clinicians that will actually diagnose or give their clients um, like a, some journaling prompts specifically to help process trauma as well. Right, exactly. It's a very, very effective method. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I, anyone who I've ever talked to, which has only been two people that have, have actually been told to do this by a clinician said it, it was very beneficial. So as we're talking about clinicians, why don't we, we transition? Because I know you uh, are a proponent. You've already mentioned this once throughout our conversation of EMDR. It's a therapeutic practice um, that is usually led by a clinician. Can you tell us a little bit about what EMDR is? I know you talk about it in the book and, and your experience with it. All right. So uh, EMDR has been around for over 30 years. And there are several other treatments for trauma and for post-traumatic stress. But in my opinion, because I've had it done, EMDR is the most powerful, the most effective treatment there is. And the best thing about it, in my opinion, is that it's not talk therapy. Like you will not be going into an EMDR certified trauma professional and having EMDR done and talking about your trauma every week for five years. It's not going to happen. It's a very concentrated way to get in and to really reboot the brain. Just like when your computer freezes, and you turn it off and reboot, and now it's, it's working smoothly now. Uh, traumas can injure our brain. I have had lots of people tell me, my, I, my brain is stuck because its ability to process an incident or life is, has been damaged, and they keep reliving things over and over and over again. They can't get past things, and they can't control things anymore. But once the brain gets rebooted and it's functioning normally, it can now do what it was created to do, to take care of these things, and they natural positive way and file them in your memory without all those negative dark feelings and, and thoughts that have attached themselves to it. So I know uh, two trauma professionals who've been doing EMDR for over 20 years and uh, both of them have said, you know, within 12 to 15 sessions, I can either heal you 
or at least get you to the point where you can manage your symptoms and get control over your life again. And often it is less than that. For me, there was a two sessions, two sessions and an issue that bothered me off and on. Remember that memory got triggered for over 25 years, went away. I still have the, the details of the, and the memories. I know everything that happened, I can talk about it, think about it. But again, all those negative bad things attached to that memory are not there anymore. And that's how it works. No matter how complex your traumas are, how severe your symptoms are, they can get there within relatively few sessions and help you at least gain control of your symptoms, help you start sleeping much better again, and help you start gaining control of your life. But if you're really struggling and you think you're losing your mind, which a lot of people do when our work traumas have really injured us, and you don't know there's a way to heal, you, you can lose hope really, really fast. That's why so many of our 140 cops killed themselves last year. But EMDR, there's over 20,000 certified EMDR trauma professionals in the country. They're all over the place. If you go to emdria.org, IA just stands for International Association. It'll tell you all about EMDR and how to find a therapist in your area. But what I hear all the time, I've never heard a negative thing about EMDR. What I hear is it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I should have done it years ago. It saved my life. That's what I hear all the time. Me too. Uh, and I, like I said, I don't have any direct experience with it, but it, it almost sounds too good to be true because anybody I've ever heard talk about it talks about it just like you do. Um, one to two sessions, there was an immediate change or difference for the better. Um, so I, I'm really glad you brought that up. One, one thing I wanted to ask you, I recently heard on a different podcast and I actually reached out to this, this doctor, her name is Dr. Stephanie Kahn. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She also wrote um, a book on resiliency with emergency, emergency personnel. She talked about um, EMDR training for paraprofessionals, meaning somebody like me and you, we are not trained clinicians, we're, we're police officers. Um, have you ever heard of that, that type of training or that type of program before? I have not, no. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know very much about it. Um, so, but because you're familiar with EMDR, I thought maybe I'd, I'd ask. Um, I think the the premise behind it is people who might be like peer support personnel uh, that might be respond after a critical incident to support their peers could be trained to kind of ward off any kind of long term impact or effect uh, of that particular incident. But beyond that, I really don't know much about how it would work. But it's it's similar, um, but you don't have to be a clinician to get the training. Right. My, my first thought in hearing that, I mean, anything that's going to be helpful, you know, would be uh, fantastic for us to start doing it. it. I would just caution that, you know, peer support isn't there to you know, diagnose somebody or to treat somebody. They're, they're there to be a listening ear, someone who's united with you through our shared traumas, who actually cares about you and is willing to listen, to help out, to offer whatever support, maybe refer you to, to, um, uh, a resource that might be beneficial, but uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to see people trying to do something maybe instead of a certified EMDR professional actually dealing with it. Um, I could see though that use once you have EMDR done and you kind of get control of what's been going on and, and to manage things to do something like that, that you just mentioned, Wendy, as a form of maintenance and, and, and to, to, uh, uh, prevent issues from coming back up to where you can kind of self-regulate 
yourself or have someone kind of do a tune-up, you know, for you, but not take the place of. Yeah, and I don't know very much about how it works, so I'll probably have to do a little bit more research before before talking about it. So I just I thought maybe you had heard of it. So sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to talk to you about, and um, in the book you talk about peer support. And one thing I did not know until I read your book was um, how long peer support has been around. Now, informally, we know that peer support's been around since policing's been around. Um, but, but, you know, right now, uh, in the last several years, um, we're a lot more awareness and recognition to the importance of implementing peer support programs and agencies is, is kind of coming to the forefront. Uh, that's one of the things at the agency I work at that we've been really working on and training uh, the goal is to train 10% of our agency. But in the book, you talked about how, it, tracing back to the 1950s, how the NYPD, I think you also say the Chicago Police Department, and maybe there's one other agency, actually started some sort of a formal program, and I think it was to, to address alcoholism. And then even as long as 1968, the year I was born, the LAPD started their behavioral science unit. So I, I just wasn't aware that this stuff had surfaced that long ago. Right. There, there have been uh, efforts going as far back as 50 plus years. Um, I think primarily the uh, originators of that was to address alcoholism. And, and then uh, over time, it's kind of slowly has evolved in, into uh, uh Kind of the current things that we're seeing now the main thing with peer support that i always like to try to emphasize is that most peer support teams are set up to be reactive you know once something happens or you notice something to then engage and reach out and and help and offer the assistance but the the real heart of peer support is being proactive peer support teams should be meeting regularly. They should be uh, developing training and resources and information that they're uh, continually putting out throughout the agency of, of how we can uh, recognize symptoms, what are the symptoms, how to reach out to someone, things to say to someone after a critical incident, things that you definitely do not want to say, how you can best support people. You know, all those proactive and positive engagements and just daily interactions with people. That's really the heart of, of peer support. And then to try to help our people to not really need peer support because peer support is training them to take better care of themselves and mind, body, emotions, and spirit and to take better care of each other. And then when things happen, when they actually do need help, okay, they're there to do what traditionally they have always done. But uh, the, the really healthy organizations are ones that have uh, found ways to have proactive peer support that's constantly being reinvented and developed kind of a, you know, that uh, self-initiated, uh, activities and ideas from the bottom up, right? And, and, and having, having the line people coming up with what they believe is going to be most helpful to them and being engaged and being part of that change. Right. Instead of being told, this is what you're going to do, include them and, and ask exactly. them for their input on, on what they want. Yes. So one of the things that has always been really helpful for me uh, since I kind of started down this path and now I am the wellness coordinator for the agency that I work at you actually um, line out um, pretty, you know, and, and you talk about this in the book about if you want to start a wellness program at your agency, here's some things that you can do um, based off of your experience. And then of course, some of your research. So 
Uh, I just want to make sure anybody who's listening, who works at any first responder agency knows that if you're looking to start a wellness initiative, this is a really good resource. Not only is it a good book for all the other reasons we've talked about, but it's it's a really good kind of starter's manual, for lack of a better word. That's not all it is on, on giving people ideas on how they can go about implementing this into their agency. Absolutely. My agency's had a peer support team since 1995. I think we're one of the first ones in San Diego County. So we've made you know many mistakes over the years and we, we've learned from them and we've grown and evolved and uh, developed. So the book has a whole chapters uh, specifically on how to create or how to maintain a proactive peer support team, how to develop uh, wellness initiatives and things that are agency-wide that include everyone and how to offer the best support, how, how to start it out if you don't have one, how to, how to um, really keep it being confidential and trusted and effective and useful. Yeah, and peer support is a, in my opinion, one of the most important components of a wellness program, but it is just one component. There's a lot of other uh, factors or other pieces to a wellness program. And if you don't mind just kind of sharing what you think, um, if you had like your ideal, if you were king for the day and every single agency would listen to you and you would, you would say, this is what every wellness program should have, what would that be besides peer support? Well, part of peer support, uh, the, there really needs to be a, a chaplaincy service. Mm -hmm. Chaplains are really effective in, uh, because in their uh, other life of being clergy, they just deal with people's problems you know, all day long. People who are grieving or suffered loss or have problems in their marriage. So they're a great resource of, of um, uh, solutions and information to our people. And plus, if there's a, a colleague who really wants that spiritual support and your agency doesn't offer it, you know, we, we stand a chance of losing that person. So uh, uh, there needs to be positive engagement in the communities as any part of a wellness program. Because every good, positive thing we do tends to erase a lot of our past traumas. That's just the way our brains work. That's how God wired us up. So the, the more good, positive engagements we can have, for example, at, at my agency, I, I developed and started a youth leadership camp where for a whole week, a group of high school kids would come in and my cops would volunteer their time. And we spent a whole week with these kids doing all kinds of stuff, you know, teaching them how to be successful leaders and things and community service and going out and doing community service with them and and uh, physical challenges and all kinds of stuff. And, and my officers loved it. They just instinctively knew, again, those positive, good, effective things and outreach to really matter and to be useful will erase a lot of our past traumas. Um, ha having um, any wellness program really has to address things from recruitment to retirement. Think about even the questions that we ask prospective police recruits. There should be questions on there about, you know, give us a situation that, that uh, really challenged you in life or that you suffered from. How did you deal with it? And, and try to hire people in the very first instance who have, have some resiliency that they've already established and, and have built in. And then in, in the academy, having mentors, um, maybe having some senior people who have been in shootings or, or, or been in some very horrific things who have gotten help or gone through them. I mean, that would be such a huge resource for me. Looking back, back in 1985, when I was 21 years old, you know, three years out of high school, put myself through the academy. To have a mentor like that to tell me what to expect through the career and, and that it's okay to be human and this is what happened to me and this is how I've survived all these years. 
Um, but uh, you know, most agencies don't have anything like that to, to modify the FTO program. So wellness is being addressed, uh, annual evaluation. So supervisors, those primary care providers are having wellness conversations uh, with, with their subordinates, at least every year, giving information from peer support about resources that go to the family, about uh, 724 phone numbers to call for the chaplain or for a peer support person, for a, uh, a health professional, a trauma professional. Um, then in-service training, continually reinforcing this whole idea of proactive wellness. And then retirement. I don't know any agencies that really use the retirees. I put in 30 years and the day after I retired, if I went back to my agency, I'd have to be escorted around the building. I can't go into my agency and use our gym. I mean, how we treat our retirees is just really stupid for the, for the most part. You know, some retirees you don't want to come back, but for those that are a good fit, think of the wealth of information, say to have a, a retiree who's really been through a lot of stuff, to be, come back and be part of the peer support team. Maybe be a mentor to somebody in the academy. Find other ways that we can use these great resources that have devoted 30 years of their life. Um, it's just an overall um, holistic approach to wellness. Those are the agencies that really tend to be the healthiest and the most functional. Yeah, that's that's really, you just hit the nail on the head. Um, at our agency, that's one of the things that we're working on right now is creating a holistic, comprehensive wellness initiative. Um, and I really like what you said about retirees because I have said what you said a lot. I think that we let a lot of institutional knowledge walk right out the door. Um, we recently had, um, at our agency, we had a couple, um, and I'm real good friends with one part of this couple, 27 years on the job each. So combined couple have almost 60 years of law enforcement experience, and they were very high ranking, very, um, very respected, very well liked, really genuine people that cared about their troops. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking at ways in our wellness program to include retirees, just like you said, as a matter of fact, we had one retiree come through our peer support basic training class, because I think you're absolutely right. I think we need to look for ways to stay connected to our retirees, but also if they're willing and able and want to also for them to come back and, and make themselves feel useful, like you said, because I think that that's sometimes what can lead people down the wrong path is if they don't have um, some sort of purpose, even post-retirement, even if it looks a little bit different. Absolutely. Yes. So one, a couple other things I want to talk about, then I want to, we'll wrap things up here. You, uh, in the book, I really like how you incorporate personal stories. Um, you obviously have gotten permission and have interviewed, uh, to some extent, I don't know people that have worked for you or you've worked with, but I have, I have found that that's really helped to illustrate whatever point you might be trying to make in, you know, whatever chapter you might be. And let's say um, one, one stands out in particular when you're talking about peer support, there's a, um, an example of a story where one person in particular found it very beneficial. So how, how did you come up with the idea to do that? And, and was it difficult to find people willing to, to tell their story in your book? No, it really wasn't difficult at all. You know, I think people like to talk about some of these experiences. They just have never been asked, especially when you present it. Uh, hey, this book is going to help a lot of people. And people can really learn from your experiences. People want to be helpful, right? So um, I, I thought of the idea as a way to uh, basically keep someone moving through the book. 
because that's kind of the most interesting part. Or sometimes there are some of these short personal stories of what someone's experience and how it's affected them. And sometimes then how they got better, how they healed and recovered from it. But it, it's a way for someone to be reading this book. And I hear this all the time of people saying, that's me. That was me. That happened to me. And it's a way to pull people into the message of the book because they realize they are not alone. There are other people who have had their very same experiences or similar feelings, similar um, effects of dealing with trauma. And it, it really pulls them into the story. And then that makes them more open to, okay, now what, what can be done about it? So they can, they can really relate to it. Cause I, again, we're all united by trauma and our shared traumatic experiences. Yeah. Brilliant. You obviously know the way cops and people think because it really does, it really does do that. It cap. I mean, it's an interesting book anyway, but those stories really, really, I mean, the way that you infuse them throughout the book is really beneficial. And, and I hope, um, helpful to people to realize, you know, there's not something wrong with me if, if I'm affected by work. And the main point I, I emphasize is it's all about what happened to you. It's not about what's wrong with you. And you see that in these stories as you go through the book. Yeah, I actually wrote that down. You talk about that. Let's see. I know I wrote that down somewhere where I really liked that part of your book where you talk about how these traumas that happen, um, there's not something wrong with you. It's something that happened to you. And I think that that is a really good point because I think a big thing, a big reason, a big reason why um, a, a lot of people keep quiet is because they feel like they're the only person who feels that way. Right, exactly. Well, I really appreciate your time, Dan. Um, how can, uh, if somebody wants to hear more from you, um, find out more about you, get your book. Um, I know you're also teaching a class, I think, um, specifically in the state of California, but I know you travel across the country. Could you just tell us how we can find you? And I'll make sure to put all this info in the show notes. Sure, I travel all over the country. So um, anyone can just reach out to me and all the information in the book, they can go to my website, First Responder Wellness. Dot com, and they can also reach out to me. My personal email is dwillis1121 at yahoo.com. The publisher also offers a 50% discount and uh, free shipping for uh, orders of 20, I think it's 20 or 25 or more. Um, so, um, I mean, and I will do anything I can to work with uh, my speaking fee and things to, to make it happen because I know a lot of agencies don't have a lot of money for this kind of training. And, and I know it's, it's saving lives. So, um, I mean, I'm here to do whatever I can to help my brothers and sisters that are keeping us all safe. Well, we appreciate it because you obviously have um, a, a real big passion to do this kind of work. And so we really appreciate the book and the work that you do and appreciate your time and sharing it all with us today. Thanks so much, Wendy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, me too. Take care. You too. I hope you enjoyed the show with Dan Willis. Again, if you're interested in contacting him, you can reach him at firstresponderwellness.com or to purchase his book, go to amazon.com. Thank you. Thank you.